Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Today I have a really fabulous guest with me today. I'm really excited to talk to Ken because he has come to the world of dark skies from a slightly different path, haven't you, Ken? Um, I've got a little bit of a grasp on your background. You've, uh, you started in uh, anaesthetics and you started up Care Flight and you spent some time in Afghanistan and now you're the secretary of the Brisbane Astronomical Society. But maybe you could give us a little bit more depth on that background and how it's brought you to the dark sky world. Yes, look, I suppose my life has come full circle and it's been a pretty, pretty big circle. Uh, there's been astronomers in my family back to the 1850s and so I always had a passion for the the night sky but uh, yes I went through medicine and uh, specialised in anaesthesia and intensive care Um, was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to be a co-founder of CareFlight in Sydney. What does that mean? What were you doing with CareFlight just so that other people know? (laughs) I was actually the first full-time rescue helicopter doctor in Australia back with Surf Lifesaving in the early 80s. Um, Mm. And I went and did my specialty degree to actually give me a little bit more authority and political clout, so to speak. Uh, But as it was, um, at the time when I finished that, uh, Surf Lifesaving decided not to uh, continue with doctors. Uh, So we Mm. actually decided to form our own organisation, which is now known as CareFlight. Um, And uh, that was very much to meet the massive... uh, trauma problem that was occurring in the western suburbs of Sydney, uh, but it's continued mm-hmm. to uh, become a national sort of entity. It Was it you that saw that need that, and that's why you, you created that with a, with a partner or was, how did that come about? Did you seek funding or...? It, it, it was a case of uh, a large number of us in surf lifesaving when they decided not to continue with doctors that there was a medical need. So... The people who founded CareFlight were largely formerly Surf Life Saving Association helicopter uh, crews and managers. And mm-hmm. uh, we actually sat down in a uh, burger bar in Bondo Beach, drew up the plans on the back <laughs> of the serviette as to what we were going to do and uh, raised the funds, got authorities, got permissions and flew our first mission 12 weeks later. So it was mm, a pretty spectacular pretty time. Yeah. So mm. I've always liked small organisations where you can put your dreams there, go for it and uh, have something to show at the end. And yet you worked for a completely different sort of organisation, that being the Army. (laughs) After my time with CareFlight, I moved to Queensland, um, which ended me up in private practice anaesthesia, but I always missed the the excitement of major trauma um, Mm. and was suggested to me at one stage that the Army were desperate for anaesthetists and intensivists. 
And mm-hmm. uh, made what, in retrospect, was a pretty stupid decision to go to Duntroon at the age of 52. Uh, <laughs> and six months you survived. later... survived. Yes, I did. Well, yeah. six months later, I was actually in Afghanistan as head of anaesthetics, intensive care and resus at uh, Tarankat Hospital. Um, mm, wow. And that was uh, quite a, an eye-opener and a, a, a major impactor on my life. I can imagine that, absolutely. So then how does, as I said, how do you get all of that? And you've, you've said that you've got the history of the, the dark skies with your, grand, your, your grandparents and your, your family. But I th- to having talked to you, and I've had the delight of doing so because I met you at the Siding Spring Conference on the Riding the Lightwave Technology Conference, um, I understand you've got a, a good... Um, you, that you appreciate the medical side of the, the the impact of the dark skies and why light pollution should be um, mediated. What what can you give us any background with that? Sure. Uh, actually, before I did uh, specialised anaesthesia intensive care, I actually uh, studied uh, for eighteen months to become a specialist in eye surgery and ophthalmology uh, before getting lured to the dark side by helicopters. Um, so I've always had a, a passion for human physiology, uh, in particular mm-hmm. visual physiology. Um, and so it's fascinating to me as I've become interested in uh, the dark sky issue, um, how kind of artificial light at night actually does negatively impact not on just insects in the environment, but particularly on humans uh, and the mechanisms and how does which it? that occurs. Mm, well, so could you give us a few examples? Yeah. Sure. Well, it, we have preliminary evidence to uh, suggest that um, excessive exposure to artificial light, uh, artificial light at night, is uh, associated with sleep disturbance, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, uh, breast, prostate, and colon cancer. Um, and They're fairly significant. <laughs> it is highly really. significant. Yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. It is not a done and dusted evidence at this stage, but there's enough there that we should all be concerned about it. And the mechanism mm. by which this occurs uh, is fairly clear. Uh, blue light uh, taken through our eyes actually inhibits uh, a hormone called melatonin, which is basically our circadian rhythm uh, hormone mm-hmm. and affects basically all organs in the body uh, and body sets the, the body clock. Uh, but melatonin also has a number of immunological uh, and anti-cancer effects and the continuing suppression of it uh, mm. has been shown uh, in animal experiments mm. to uh, have quite negative effects, particularly the cancer effects. Um, and we have circumstantial evidence in humans too of higher incidences of these diseases in people who are exposed to uh, blue-rich light uh, throughout their uh, 24-hour cycle. So particularly in shift workers such as nurses, uh, yeah. there are higher incidences. I, I actually was really lucky to attend the International Dark Sky Association conference last year. And in with with regards to that, there was also the, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the organisation, but there, there were some fabulous speakers that came along. And one of them was even Eva Schoenbaumer. And she's been studying particularly um, women working shift work nurses at night for the last 20 years. And I remember the statistic that she gave was that uh, nurses working in those conditions at night could be up to 50% more likely to get breast cancers than any other population. But what was also significant, and this is in her later work, was that she was then saying um, 
that it's a bit like smoking, that as soon as you get out of that environment, your, your, um, in, your opportunity to get that sort of disease would actually decrease quite rapidly as well. So it, it, the good news is that once you've worked in these conditions, you don't have to carry that, uh, that risk perpetually. It, it, there is an opportunity to, to remove yourself from it and remove yourself from that risk, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, I think that speaks mm. a lot about light pollution in many ways. It's one of the simplest uh, negative impacts on us that we can just stop or turn off, unlike many other forms of pollution, which we're really stuck with. Even if we did the best, uh, we would still be stuck with them for many years, whereas uh, light pollution is something we can do with just with the flick of a switch. But is it as easy as that, Ken? And I know, um, again, from talking to you with some work that we've been doing up at Bunyan National Park, uh, you you talked to me about the work that you've been doing with uh, Brisbane City Council and lighting and their policies around that. And maybe you could sort of just give us a little bit of background on what you've you've been working with them with and what the outcomes have been. It's it's a fascinating contrast we have up here because I live on the Sunshine Coast, which has probably one of the best urban lighting master plans in the world. Um, and it all follows the International Dark Sky Association principles. And just next door mm. we have the Brisbane City Council, who really seem to be quite ignorant, or even worse, actually not wanting to know about the effects of light pollution and the spillover effect that occurs from Brisbane out into the rest of southeast Queensland. Um, and while people from Brisbane City Council and Energy Queensland have been quite open in, in talking to me and discussing things with me, uh, the credence given to these medical problems uh, and the light pollution problems are uh, outweighed by their desire to have good bright lighting um, throughout their city. Uh, quite a frustration uh, considering that Brisbane's actually named after an astronomer, uh, but that's <laughs> the way it is. Yes, Lieutenant Brisbane. Uh, do you think it's that people want bright light or is it because I often get this sort of question, is it that they want it or is it that they've already got a contract or that people who are making these decisions just don't understand the effects of light pollution? I, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. Look, I think a lot of people, once you kind of point out the problems of bright lighting at night, uh, actually come around pretty quickly. Um, mm. Most people think, oh, yeah, lights at night, yeah, that looks good. Then you kind of go through it step by step. Well, what's, what are you losing in the process? And you often see people do a complete reversal, um, talking to the people on the Bunya Mountains who are now virtually having a competition between themselves as to who can come up with the best best out, outdoor lights in their houses. Whereas mm -hmm. six months ago, um, they were either ignorant or didn't see the problem. But once it's been pointed out, they've, they've come around full circle. I think ignorance is not intentional because I think that word can be used with a double meaning it's not ignorant that they don't want to know it's just simply that there hasn't been a lot of communication around light pollution it's it we uh, we haven't known about it or haven't really even registered it in Australia and that's part of the job that we're doing now with the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance is which you're also a member of Ken um, is to actually really really communicate that so people don't as you say, as soon as people understand the message, they want to get involved. Sure. I mean, I, I think it comes back very much to... I was ignorant about it largely till five years ago. Um, and it was kind of... When it hit me, it was, it was huge. Um, I was actually over in the Grand Canyon, rafting the Grand Canyon, 
second mm-hmm. time I've Lovely. done it. And everybody else on the rafting trip was from Florida. And I got out one night while around the car- campfire down the bottom of the Grand Canyon that I knew my way around the stars. And like all good astronomers, just happened to have a laser pointer in my pocket. So I did the star tour. <laughs> Ta-da! And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Which went over really well. But one of the ladies started crying and I, I kind of stopped and said, sorry, have I, I offended you? And she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm just, I'm 42. This is the second night in my life I've ever seen a star. Oh, and, wow. Um, the first time she had seen them was during Hurricane Katrina when she was 35. <laughs> Otherwise, all she knew mm. of the night sky was this orange dome. And it turned mm. out that everybody on that tour was from Florida because the Grand Canyon was okay, but the stars were amazing. And suddenly mm. it just hit me that, wow, I've taken them for granted all my life. I mean, I live in a place mm. where the Milky Way is bright enough to cast a shadow. and mm-hmm. um, The bottle th- scale, yeah. yes. And to think that mm. here's mm. people who've lived their whole life never seeing stars, it just stunned mm. me. Actually, as you were saying that, I'm sorry, I got a bit teary-eyed because I just, I, I think how privileged we are in Australia to still have a night sky and that we don't have a vastly light-polluted country. And as you say, we take it for granted. But how desperately sad it is if we made the whole world that way. And whilst the palm tree might look spectacular and the side of the building might look great and, you know, we might be able to sell our goods through the, the, the light that we're shining, it's... I think there's something more magical about the night sky that people really still connect to and they do have a moving experience when they see it. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why I think that through what the ADSA is doing and also the idea of setting up reserves and parks in Australia is a great way of kind of raising awareness about uh, what we have and not taking it for granted. So talking about that, I know that you're involved with the creation or the potential creation of a dark sky park up in Queensland. Can you enlighten us with that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no pun intended, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, Um, no, no, completely intended, yeah. (laughs) Well, on the shoulders of the Sunshine Coast Council having such a great urban lighting master plan, um, I I approached the council to actually see if I could uh, talk to them about taking this further and actually formalising their stewardship of good night lighting uh, in the form of a dark sky reserve in the OBOB Valley, which is west of Sunshine Coast, uh, west of Maroochydore, and about uh, 100 kilometres north of Brisbane. Uh, That's a stunningly beautiful area. It is. Mm. And fortunately, uh, you know, it's, it's a massive valley uh, with a western wilderness area and very few streetlights at all. Uh, the council's very on site. Uh, they've been undertaking a feasibility study to do something about it. Um, and uh, we're getting the ticks in the boxes that they want to proceed. Uh, at this stage, they're just not quite sure how to proceed with uh, doing an application uh, and how mm. expensive it is uh, to do such a thing. Uh, and I'm trying to tell them that it's, it's not hard and it's not expensive. Um, and it's one of those expenses that will pay off in the future. Oh, I th- <laughs> absolutely. I yeah. think so. Mm. Um, I was talking to council at just last night about it and she sees that the, the payoff for doing this uh, is absolutely fantastic for a place that is so tourism dependent. Uh, and we have the local university also involved in looking at the whole concept of dark sky tourism here in Queensland, which is great. 
So what would that be? But what would that involve with the university in particular? Because I think there's a real, you know, we talk about um, the benefits, obviously, to the ecology and environment, and and you've touched on briefly about the medical things with human beings as well. But I think there's a real vast opportunity with businesses and 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 also research to come through universities. I don't know of anyone doing a PhD, for example, in light pollution in Australia. So I'm curious to know what. Uh, Aspects University of is it University of Queensland? University of Sunshine Coast. Sunshine Coast. Okay, yes. I beg your pardon. So, how are they? Why are they involved? Why do they see the benefit? What do they want to do with it? I think one of the, the things that uh, they are looking at is they have a keen interest generally about what they call um, last chance tourism. It's the tourism that we have to set up and uh, maintain the environment, lest we lose it forever. Um, and this is mm. becoming a, a hot topic. Um, obviously, Queensland relies very heavily on tourism, um, and there's some people, such as myself, wor- worry about the Great Barrier Reef and how long we will have that as a tourist mecca. Um, but uh, the other the other aspect of looking at it from the last chance ecotourism is also the ethics of things like this. Do you want to set up a dark sky park? that attracts so many visitors that you actually destroy what you're trying to demonstrate. Um, and so mm. how do you find a balance? Uh, many parks and reserves around the world have actually found that by having the tourists, they increase the awareness and therefore the locals deal with their lighting better and they end up with a net gain of better lighting rather than worse. Uh, but mm. there are other places that have become so popular uh, that they are struggling uh, with the kind of the ethical dilemma that this presents. It is an interesting fact. Uh, I've been to the International Dark Sky Conference in Tucson and also in Scotland, and I've probably spoken to, I don't know, about 30 or 40 different park, maybe even more people who have started up parks and have different um, areas around the world. I think the last count of International Dark Sky Association parks was 108, which is fabulous but only one at the moment in Australia Um, but what I became aware of is when I was talking to these people is that a lot of them have really different reasons for being there so some people have set up the park really just because it's a fabulous way of preserving the area and to maintain the, the dark sky that they currently already have some are using it to uh, extend their, you know, they might already have really good conservation values, but they'd like to be seen to be doing more and to using it as an opportunity. But while some parks have really uh, used it to drive tourism and to have excessively large numbers of people, I know of some parks that literally do three or four sessions a night with a couple of hundred each, you know, each, couple, sorry, a couple of hundred people each time. That's not what everybody wants to do. And in fact, some people are really limiting it to just having five or six people, but charging, you know, a a premium for it, but really giving those people an, you know, a fabulous night experience. And, um, and other parks that are using it, not just to talk about the night sky and the, the stars, although they are fabulous, but to use things like bats or moths or, um, even insects to actually talk about the bigger community or the bigger diversity uh, issue here. So it, it is interesting to see how parks do it around the world. And um, I, I 
acknowledge what Queensland, uh, sorry, Sunshine Coast University are doing with that because if you're mindful of that to start with, then you can end up with the product and the outcomes that you really want to, to achieve with, with, with Mulaney uh, in your case. So I would agree. I mean, I haven't had the experience that you have personally, but reading through all the various applications and the descriptions, each, each park and reserve seems to be so unique in their approach and what they're doing. Uh, yes. Fascinating to watch. Yeah, it is. And so what do you think the outcomes with Mulaney will be? What do you want it to achieve? That's a good question. Um, I don't see it as becoming a major commercial entity up there, but it could. Uh, but there are a lot of short-stay people in bed and breakfasts, etc., in Mulaney, uh, and a lot of locals who are very pro-environment. And I think the idea of the Dark Sky Reserve actually marries the two of those together. Uh, quite nicely. Mm. Um, the uh, people that I talk up there are, are fascinated by it. When we run our um, public uh, viewing nights up at Mulaney, the Brisbane Astronomical Society, we always get uh, a great attendance and some very insightful uh, discussion by the locals who in turn spread the word. So I think that they don't want to be overrun by tourists, but they do accept that uh, tourism is a major uh, economic factor in uh, Mulaney. And that uh, doing this just adds a nice uh, extra um, ecological arm to uh, what they offer. Yeah. As you say, if they've already got tourism there, why don't we make them environmentally aware tourists and really um, yeah, highlight, the <laughs> highlight the low lights, if you'd like to say that. Yes, the, absolutely. The lights shining downwards, yes. So, Ken, if I can, I'll take you back to the medical stuff because I think that is where I really began to grasp the importance of the dark sky movement. I, I think, the, as I understand it, the um, International Dark Sky Association existed for about 30 years and it was started by astronomers in Tucson wanting to protect the night sky and the, the telescope viewing that they were doing from their significant um, observatories. But... And, and Fred and I have actually discussed this. Fred Watson and I have discussed this a few times about well, maybe they lost the argument for light pollution then because people don't always look at the night sky and they if you've got five stars and why don't you you know why don't you just use those five stars instead of the rest of it? But when you start talking about the impact on animals and start seeing that pollination is being decreased by up to sixty seven percent as soon as you put in a street next to it with with street lights um People started to really pick up on that. But I think it's the medical argument that really needs to be brought forward and the one that grabbed me because I, I could see, you know, if I reduce my blue light in my house at night, then I'm less likely to, to, um, to get cancers. But not only that, I'm going to sleep better. So I know of um, a few activities that happen, such as the blue light um, paper that was written in New Zealand. Could you Do you know much about that to to highlight why, you know, organisations that are doing things around the world and to bring it to medical for? Uh, That's not a very good question, I know. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I but basically, how do, we, how do we get the medical um, community in Australia to understand what's happening with the dark sky movement and, and, and also educate the public on this without sounding like scaremongers, basically? Yes, look, I, I, I don't know mm. an easy answer to that one, to be honest. Um, 
and in many ways, I mean, the American Medical Association are way ahead of us in terms of recognising the problem and actually having a, a position paper on it, um, kind of talking about particularly with street lighting the, the, effect, the negative effects, for, whereas it's not getting a lot of traction here. Um, the, the New Zealand Royal Society uh, investigation to blue light has actually been a very nice review of the science and, and a good scientific approach to it. Uh, so that was blue light, it wasn't street lights. Whereas, yes. So as I understand it from what you just said, the American paper was particularly on high-intensity street lighting. Yes, and, and it's, not, it's copped mm. a lot of flack, uh, the American one, because people are, are saying that, well, you know, street lighting is not the major factor. Uh, but that was where they were asked to come up with a position paper, was on street lighting specifically, and that's what they talked about. Um, and also pointed out that, you know, we have a choice when we're inside to turn on or off our blue-rich lights, whereas when you're driving down the road, you've got to accept whatever has been given to you. Uh, so, uh, but we, we just don't have the traction in this country at the moment. Um, I think we are seeing it uh, in pockets, for example, uh, in geriatrics. It's becoming uh, increasingly aware that... Uh, the uh, daylight lighting in nursing homes is actually a significant factor in problems with uh, sleep disturbance. Uh, but that's only a very small pocket of the medical fraternity. Uh, and at this stage, I'm really not sure how we um, raise it in a significant manner. I do know of uh, a company, JHA, that have installed circadian rhythm lighting in a couple of nursing homes around Australia to um, overcome exactly what you said. So that the, the, pa the patients, that's not the right word, but the people living in these nursing homes uh, are actually enabled to have a full 24-hour day cycle rather than being in high-intense lighting. And, I, again, I've heard of a few um, hospitals trying to do things as well. Um, when you say blue-rich light, Ken, um, I think we should probably explain what that really means. Right, so, so white light, as, as we know it, is actually a combination of all colours of the spectrum. Uh, and lights can be designed to actually be or typically what we call warm white, so they're closer to the orange end of the spectrum, or cold white, closer so more to the like blue a, end. So more like a flame yes. colour? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the warm white kind of those orange sodium vapour lamps you see as part of our street lighting, uh, what we call warm white lights, whereas the newer mercury halide ones are the, the cool white. Uh, the melatonin that I uh, discussed before is specifically... Are triggered by one very specific frequency of light, which is in the blue end of the spectrum. So, uh, unfortunately, that also happens to be where the modern white LED actually puts out most of its colour, uh, unless you specifically filter it out. Uh, and which can be done. It can be done. Um, mm -hmm. The problems with doing that is that it can detract something from the light output of the light but filters are getting better and better so that it's only a minimal loss of, of actual light output to do that. Um, mm -hmm. mm. But So why doesn't everybody do that? If we've got, I guess the thing is that we don't have enough evidence to say or enough traction yet to lobby the groups that are making or purchasing the lights or... It's, it's look, it's a mystery to me why we, mm. why we do that. Uh, people are sold that, you know, the 
we should aspire at night to make the straits look like daytime. Um, and I think the, the psychology and the, the facts behind that that makes it safer or better uh, just doesn't stand up to scrutiny uh, scientifically. Um, but people, if they're not aware of the problems, seem to think that's what we're aiming for. I guess I always remember my father saying to me years ago when we started to hear about climate change and he said, even if there's no, this is years ago, even if there's no proof on it and we don't have enough evidence, if we have the technology to do it better, why aren't we doing it? <laughs> and I, I keep coming back to, to that with blue lights. And, and if, I'm, if I'm in a position to talk to councils who are asking about what lighting they could use or why they would do it, I come back to, well, you've got the ability to do it. Why don't you benchmark the best rather than just taking, you know, whatever comes really. Anyway, um, I, and I, I go back to the um, thing about Australia and not pushing the, the blue light um, argument as well in Australia. I think at the time will come and I, and I, I think it's enough of that grassroots movement that if you go into – Woolworths and you ask for warm coloured globes and there's, you know, currently there's virtually no lights like that on the shelves. Or if you go into Bunnings and you say, I want some downward pointing shielded, fully shielded lights from my backyard, the more that groups go or people, individuals go in and ask their organisations, the more support we're going to get for this and the more traction. And then people say, well, why are these people asking for these things? <laughs> so that, that's been my goal everywhere I go is just to talk to everybody about it. And, and every little action that we take is a big step forward for the movement, I guess. And, uh, yeah. Yes, and, and I think uh, Bunnings is a good example. I, uh, I wrote to Bunnings a few months ago and pointed out that of their uh, 120 outdoor lights, only three of them actually met dark sky guidelines. And did they know that this is an issue and it's a potential for marketing? Uh, they were very excited, actually, to uh, look into that further and uh, see if that's uh, an opportunity that Fantastic. they've been ignorant about. Mm. So it mm. is as simple as pointing it out and asking people. That's that's fantastic, Ken. Um, well, we might see the whole of Bunnings nationwide take on a really fantastic marketing campaign to be dark sky friendly. Well, uh, look, I would love to see uh, Bunnings marketing lights that have a little logo from the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance saying this is the dark sky friendly light. Uh, mm. And I, I think like it's, <laughs> it's a, it would be a win-win situation because I think the dark sky lovers would promote Bunnings for doing the right thing and Bunnings would have an excellent... Uh, marketing kudos that they don't have. And obviously there are other lighting manufacturers and, and shops that can do the same. Absolutely, yeah. And I guess actually just on a related issue, the, the other thing is, is electricians. You know, imagine being the, the dark sky friendly electrician for, you know, southeast Queensland um, and having that as your, as your speciality. I think that's a real good marketing branding opportunity for someone. Well, I've, I've just been through the exercise in the high-rise building where I live uh, in Maroochydore um, of replacing our old style fluorescent and halogen with uh, LED lighting that is um, dark sky compliant uh, and higher um, numbers of motion activated lighting rather than just lighting everything up 24 hours a day and our we have 64 units here and we've we've done the figures in quite some detail and it's come back that it'll cost us $24,000 to change them over, um, but we will save over the next 10 years $75,000 net 
uh, by wow. making that approach mm. and at the same time mm. cut our light pollution signature by in excess of 95%. That's true. People like to know about the dollar sign and if they hear a saving, that's often a big uh, step forward for them as well to get involved. Yeah. So, Ken, just we're going to wrap up uh, very shortly, but I'm really keen to know what your most vivid memory of the night sky is. I know you've, you've talked about one there in um, the Grand Canyon, but what, yeah, what is that moment that really stands out in your mind with the night sky? I, like, I think the moment that really stands out for me was uh, a couple of years ago when I was in the Western uh, Conondale Ranges, west of the Sunshine Coast, in the middle of winter on a perfect night. I was actually doing some dark sky readings and realised that there was a shadow uh, on the ground and figuring out that Mm. it had to be from the Milky Way overhead Mm. and to think, Mm. how lucky am I to actually live in a place Mm. where I can see that Um, and how few people just can't believe that that's possible. You've taken my breath away, Ken. So on that note, we'll wrap up. But I'd love to thank you so much for your time, for giving us your insights from anaesthetics all the way through to Afghanistan and, and up to the night sky has been fabulous. And um, if uh, everyone else would like to join me in sending some questions, uh, they can uh, contact us by emailing podcast at darkskytraveller.com.au and uh, sending your questions that way. But again, thank you very much, Ken. My pleasure, Marnie. Thanks.